You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you guys joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, the usual homework, make sure you go follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hazard Ground or at Hazard Ground Podcast. And also, we have some great news for you guys. We all know you guys shop on Amazon. Well, from now on, here's what we want you to do. Go to our website, hazardground.com. And all you have to do is click on the banner on our homepage, and it's going to take you directly to Amazon, and you will be able to shop there just as normal. Here's the best part about doing all this. Every month, if you guys use our website to go to Amazon, we'll be donating a portion of the proceeds from Amazon sales to one of the veterans organizations that we featured on this podcast. So not only will you be helping out our podcast, The Hazard Ground, but you'll also be helping out great organizations like Mission Memorial Day, the Greatest Generations Foundation, Merging Vets and Players, the Shadow Warrior Foundation, the Pat Tillman Foundation, and 22 Kills. So once again, go to hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon banner. The next time you do your Amazon shopping, do your personal shopping, your office business shopping, whatever it may be, it's the simple and easy way to give back to veterans everywhere and be part of the Hazard Ground community. Now on to this week's episode. This week's guest is a retired Marine Lance Corporal who served in Afghanistan during his deployment uh, and suffered injuries, was medically retired, and through his ordeal and his struggle, his family started a foundation called the Purple Heart Cruise. It is Alex Yedis joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Alex, welcome. How are you? I'm great. How are you guys? Uh, We're great. Thanks you for being here. We appreciate it. Uh, Incredible story, uh, and we want to get to all of it, especially the Purple Heart Cruise stuff, because... Uh, to create that foundation for veterans and what you guys are doing, essentially putting people on a cruise for free, uh, is totally, totally amazing. So we want to hear all about that. But let's start way back at the beginning. And, and tell us why you joined the Marine Corps. Uh, well, I joined the Marine Corps because, you know, my father was a United States Marine ever since I was born. And uh, it's just something that I've always wanted to do, man. And, uh, you know, I, I played soccer all my life and decided to go to college and, realized that I wasn't going to get what I wanted out of that being in college. And so I, I, um, finished out the semester and just didn't sign up for classes on the next one and went to the recruiting station and told them what I wanted to do and who I was and what I knew. And, and it just kind of went from there, you know, joined the delayed entry program and waited until they had a, uh, a spot open for the infantry contract, which is what I wanted. And went to boot camp in July of 2012, I believe. And ever since then, it's just been a it's been a rough ride, but it's been a fun ride, and I do it all over again. You know, when when you decided to leave college, I'm curious as to what your parents said. Uh, my parents have always been supportive of things I want to do. Obviously, you know, the the right thing. You know, they didn't want me doing any crazy drugs or anything stupid like that, of course. But you know, if if I had something that I wanted to do. My family was usually pretty supportive of it. My my father, of course, was always supportive of me joining the Marine Corps, never really pushed me to do it, but was never opposed to the fact. And my mother was the same way. She just kind of wanted me to think about, you know, what was what was going to happen after, what was going to be the outcome, but always supportive of my decision, you know. And as a mother, she, you know, didn't want me to get hurt. She didn't want me to get killed, you know, things of that nature that, that I'm 
that a mother would normally worry about. But other than, you know, my mom just wanted me to finish college. They were completely supportive of me dropping out, so to speak. Actually, I guess I did, but dropping out and joining the Marine Corps because they knew that I wanted to do it all my life. Other than your father being it, was there, what was the kind of attraction at the time? I, I guess, because look, you know, not only are you post 9-11, like you're post Osama bin Laden being killed. You know, at yeah. this point in time, like, you know, Iraq was gone. Like, you know, like everything had been theoretically shut down and the war was winding down. I mean, uh, was there this overwhelming desire as well to serve your country or what was that all about? Uh, it was mainly, you know, just, just the fact that my dad was in the Marines and then, you know, I'll be honest, a, a lot of people don't know this, but when I was at college, I was at the University of West Georgia in, in Carrollton, Georgia, and I was studying psychology. And one night I was doing a paper and on my laptop and I, and I took a break from writing this paper and I got on Facebook and I saw graduate boot camp graduation photos of guys that I knew in high school that had decided that they wanted to join the Marine Corps right after the right after high school. You know, they had no plans of it you know, in their entire life before, except after they graduated. And that's what kind of really not pissed me off, but just kind of irritated me that, you know, these guys decided that they were going to join the Marine Corps on a whim. And here I was wanting to do it my whole life. And I was stuck at college writing a paper for history of Western art class that I gave zero fucks about. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was just, it was just one of those things like, I saw it and, and I was like, man, I was like, that should be me. I'm tired of waiting. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm not playing soccer, which is what I originally, you know, I played soccer for 16 years of my life. I, I wasn't playing soccer in college. And I was like, man, screw this. I, I, I want to be a Marine. Um, I really love shooting. I wanted to be a scout sniper. It's the, the main reason why I, I signed an infantry contract. And uh, yeah, it was, it was just, you know, my, my father did it. My, my dad's dad, Carl, he was in the United States Marines. Um, my dad's technical stepdad, John O'Connor, my papa, the, the founder of the Purple Heart Cruise, um, he was a naval aviator. Uh, my uncle Sandy was in the Marines in Vietnam, also a Purple Heart recipient. Um, my my mom's dad, my granddad was a, was in the Air Force. So I just come from a long history of, of military, and it's just been something that's kind of been ingrained and, and taught into my to my brain and to my soul that I just, I couldn't, I couldn't let it go. No, that's fair. I mean, listen, I, I, I guess I understand all the, uh, all the reasons to do it. Just making that decision, you know, is a drastic life change. Uh, when you went to the recruiting station, got your contract signed, did you tell your parents ahead of time you were doing it or you just kind of did it and then brought her home and said, Hey, here's what I did. Oh yeah. They, they knew. Okay. Uh, I actually went to the recruiting station with my dad okay. just to kind of have that, uh, you know, not, not that I not that I thought that I was somebody, but I didn't want to go into the recruiting station to a staff sergeant or a gunnery sergeant and him thinking I was just some quote unquote dumb, you know, college dropout kid. You know, I, I kind of knew what I was talking about. I knew what I was doing. Um, my dad had been a drill instructor from 2006 to 2009. I actually lived on Paris Island. I knew exactly what was going on. Oh, really? I knew the whole process. I knew I, I know Paris Island like the back of my hand. So that's, my that's funny because usually I ask people, was boot camp a surprise? Like, was there anything you didn't expect? You knew everything going in. Um, yeah, man. I mean, we we marched, uh, not marched, but hiked past my old house. Um, 
I mean, the same routes that we took for, for PT and, and, and hikes and marches and stuff are the same routes that I used to ride as a high schooler back in the day on my bike. You know what I mean? Like it it was, it was like going home. There was nothing, there was nothing, not, I'm not going to say challenging, but there was nothing that I didn't expect. So boot camp for me, you know, I, I knew exactly what to do. I knew what to say. I knew where I was the whole time. Um, everything, everything was pretty easy. Was that a comforting that. feeling? Like, did you feel like you had one up on all your fellow Marines at that point in time? Cause you kind of knew everything. I did. Um, you know, I didn't flaunt it. I didn't necessarily want my drone instructors knowing that I knew. <laughs> Smart <everything>. move. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I didn't want to be a target. I knew to lay low. Uh, I wasn't the, I wasn't the platoon guide. I wasn't anyone special. I wasn't a squad leader. I was just another, another recruit that just so happened to know everything. So that's pretty cool. I mean, not a lot of people have that. I mean, that's, that's an incredible story that uh, you, you go to Paris Island where you actually grew up and lived on the base. And um, that's just, I, I guess that makes the whole thing a lot easier. Like you said, things are still challenging, but mentally yeah, I, you, you have that little edge that makes you feel comfortable. Okay. So after you graduate boot camp, what's your first assignment? Where do you go? Uh, so I graduated Paris Island, you know, uh, Marine Corps boot camp, September 7th, 2012. Right. And uh, from there, I had about, what, let me say, a, a week, week and a half of uh, of what they call boot leave mm-hmm. um, to go home and do whatever. And then I reported to Camp Geiger, North Carolina, which is an attachment of uh, Camp Lejeune. And I went there for School of Infantry, the Infantry Training Battalion specifically. Um I can't remember the exact date. Obviously, it's been a while, but went there, and that was my first quote-unquote duty assignment. And uh, while at infantry school, about two weeks before the split, actually about a week and a half before the split, which is where you pick your your designation for your MOS. So the infantry is obviously 03, and then the next two numbers indicates what your job is. So 0311 would be infantry rifleman, which is what I was. You have 0331, which would be an infantry machine gunner, 0341 mortarman, so on and so forth. And actually about a week and a half before the split, which is where, you know, things would have been a lot better in the sense of learning, uh, I actually ruptured my appendix on the 10K hike. And I actually finished it. And uh, I didn't go to the hospital until about two days later. Um, And I had about 104 degree temperature. My appendix had ruptured. I had an abscess formed. Oh, and I man. Was about, I was about 12 hours away from my abscess, my abscess rupturing and myself going septic. And so I actually got recycled in infantry school because I didn't make that 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 turning point, the, the 50% mark, if you will. And so I had to actually start infantry school all over again. So, so – Hold on a second. Just back it up. Did you not go see anybody? Did you know when you ruptured it? Did you know what would happen or you just felt the pain? And did you not go see anybody because you didn't want to be considered not a tough guy or anything like that? No, it wasn't necessarily about a tough guy. I'm I'm one of those people that if I complain about being sick or if I complain about being hurt, then I'm actually sick or I'm actually hurt. So uh, I remember being in the in one of the classrooms we were doing, you know, some, some class on weapons or tactics or something. And we took a break and I actually went outside and threw up and I felt really nauseous, really sick to my stomach. And I, I it's graphic, but I can remember throwing up the, uh, the Buffalo chicken MRE. There you uh, go. Specifically. <laughs> and, and I never had it after that. Yeah, I, I kind uh, of assumed when you said that you were never eating it again. Oh no, I, I, I can't 
stand the smell of it. But I, uh, I threw it, I threw it up and, and I just thought to myself like, okay, maybe I'm just dehydrated. You know, maybe I ate too much. Maybe the, the, the MREs are messing with my stomach, whatever. Let me, let me puke this out and I'll be good. Well, it just, it just kind of got worse from there. It's just a really bad, sharp pain in my stomach. And I remember that night we went back to the squad bay and we started packing for the, the 10 K hike and, um, getting all the gear ready and I remember that night laying in my rack thinking like oh man you know I, I fucking hurt like you know I, I don't I don't feel good at all and I, I contemplated getting my cell phone out of my wall locker and, and calling the MPs because you know I, I didn't want to I didn't want to make a big scene I, I knew I, just, I knew something was wrong and but I kind of sucked it up I guess if you will and the next morning you know I, I told my my SOI instructor that I didn't feel good but it, I guess that wasn't enough to get myself out of a hike because I guess a lot of people try to get out of hikes. And so I just did it. And I was actually in first platoon. That was our, uh, that was the platoon I was in. And during the hike, I, I fell all the way back to third platoon. And I mean, we're talking a platoon's got what, 40 guys in it or so. So I'm, yeah. I'm not in anywhere close to my platoon where the instructors knew me. And so I'm back at third platoon with instructors that have no idea who I am. And, you know, they're, they're yelling at me. They're telling me to quit being a pussy. They're telling me to, you know, they're, they're pretty much making me sprint with all my gear and weapon and everything back up to the front where my platoon was telling me to get out of their platoon. And, uh, the whole time, I think, I think my appendix ruptured on the hike. I'm, I'm pretty sure. And, uh, I don't necessarily remember feeling it. It was just, I couldn't stand up straight. So I was leaned over and you know, I had about 70 pounds worth of gear on my oh, back man i'm, I'm uh, at that time i was only 140 pounds at the at the most you know and and uh so i'm just in, in dying pain but I, I i couldn't figure out what it was and i'm, I'm naturally a good hiker i actually love to hike you know and and, and I, I just didn't know what was wrong with me and later that night when we got done you know through the day and everything i was just like all right something's wrong but I couldn't necessarily complain. And the next day we were going to the field for about a week. We we're going to the range and, you know, that night we're packing for everything. And, and I told, I told the, um, whichever Marine was on guard duty that night. I was like, look, man, I was like, I'm, I'm something's wrong with me. I'm, I'm not feeling good. And, uh, so I waited until the morning time. So what, I guess a day, two days had passed by then. And, um, when the instructor came in that I was actually kind of, quote-unquote friends with if you will i was cool with him he was a little bit more understanding i told him i said i said hey look man you know i didn't even call him by his rank and, and that's how hurt i was i was like look man i was like i'm i'm in pain i don't know what the fuck's wrong with me but i'm i'm not okay and uh so they had me go sit in the in the company first sergeant's office and and uh, i remember them taking me to the battalion aid station and the mo there the medical officer he did a uh, a rebound test on my stomach which is where you lay on your back and he pushes two fingers down on your abdomen and it if you have a ruptured appendix your your append your stomach will kind of like stay down after he pushes it and i remember him pushing on the area and i just screamed out fuck like really loud inside the inside the battalion aid station and he was like yep that's it he was like grab your grab your driver and he's like you're going to camp lejeune naval hospital he was like your appendix is ruptured and I went there, and, and sure enough, they did an MRI or CAT scan or whatever they did. And they're like, "Yeah, your your appendix has ruptured. It's already formed an abscess, and your abscess is on the verge of bursting. 
and when your abscess bursts, it'll cause you to go septic and you'll die. So they had to do an emergency surgery then and had my appendix removed and spent a couple of weeks in Lima company, which is like the recovery platoon where guys get injured. They go to, or, you know, Marines that are getting kicked out for whatever reason um, they go to. And then I just kind of got recycled back into another platoon and I had to literally start everything over all the ranges I did again, all the classes I did, all the hikes I did again, all the physical fitness tests I did everything. So I pretty much did infantry school twice. Wow. Did your instructors ever come up to you and apologize and say anything and say, Hey man, sorry, we missed it. You know, we, we should have been a little bit more careful, anything like that or no. Yeah. Um, my dad, and, and if he listens to this, he can vouch for it. Uh, I'm pretty sure he chewed out everyone from the, uh, let's see, the battalion commander down. So like a Colonel or Lieutenant Colonel, <laughs> he chewed everyone's ass. Like he was just pissed. He was like, look, like how the fuck do you guys let a Marine, rupture an appendix form an abscess you guys didn't fucking listen to any of his complaints like you know if if he's complaining there's probably something wrong you need to listen to him and i actually had pretty much everyone that was in a power position in the chain of command come into my hospital room and and spend some time with me and talk to me and tell me i'm a badass and all that good stuff and build me up but at the same time it's like you motherfuckers should have listened before I died in your squad bay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Did that sour you at all? Uh, I mean, not really. I, I see exactly where they're coming from because, you know, the same, <laughs> this is a funny story. The, the guy, a guy on the same hike that I was on that my appendix ruptured, he fell out and he was quote unquote dehydrated from drinking a monster energy drink the day before. So, uh, the instructors, they see kids fall out and not want to do these hikes because of the simplest, smallest things. Like, you know, while I was in Afghanistan, I was dehydrated like a motherfucker, but you never saw me fall out of, of a combat patrol or a firefight for being dehydrated. And the guy that actually fell out of, out of that hike ended up going to the same unit I did. And I bust his balls about it all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I, I did that same 10 K hike with a burst appendix and you couldn't do it. Cause you drank a fucking monster. The day before. <laughs> That's you know, really like, what is funny. that? What is that? How does that make you feel? You know, but you know, the instructors, they, they see kids complain and whine and bitch and moan all the time that they probably didn't take me serious. You know, I may, I was maybe that one case that they should have listened, but at the end of the day, I'm, I'm, I'm alive. I don't have to ever worry about my appendix every more anymore. And, uh, it's just one of those things I, I gained a lot of knowledge from going through twice. They actually changed the curriculum, um, between those, between that like six to eight week period of my recovery time, they actually changed everything. You know, we got, I got new gear, I got new, uh, new training techniques, new everything. So it was kind of beneficial to me in the sense of, I got to learn old school infantry tactics and new school infantry tactics. So I, I don't really complain. I'm kind of thankful for it. Well, I mean, again, and, and listeners of the podcast know that I'm a lieutenant colonel in the Army, and you know that as well. And I, the only reason I ask is because I, I, you know, there is a certain leadership component, uh, and many of the people who listen to this podcast have experienced both good and bad leadership throughout their military careers for those who have had it, as opposed to the, not, the civilians who haven't been in the military. But, you know, that said, it's it's our responsibility as leaders to question the things that we do and how we do them. And... You know, I, I look at the situation, I'm sitting here going, well, 
you know, it, it wasn't like, first of all, it wasn't like it was basic training. Second yeah. of all, you had a, a couple of weeks there for them to get an idea of who you are and what you were about. That Exactly. You know, they, they I feel like they, the instructors should have been a little bit more alert to say, look, you know, if Alex is complaining, it's probably legit. There, there's probably something going on here that, that's a little bit more than just the average guy saying, oh, I don't want to go on a hike. Because yeah. those guys are routine complainers. They do it religiously. Right. I mean, exactly. I, I think you can tell who the who the physical studs are and the guys who aren't struggling and things of that nature. And and those guys never usually complain about anything. And so when they do, it makes you go, OK, well, th- there might be something legitimate going on. Maybe we should investigate a little bit further. And I think leaders are compelled to do that kind of stuff. Yeah. And I, and I mean, like I said, you know, my my infantry instructors, you know, the, these are guys that I looked up to. You know, what I mean, these are all combat hardened veterans, you know veterans of combat and and they knew their jobs really well and they and they taught really well and they were badasses and and i looked up to them you know what i mean and i just wish that and i'm not holding any grudges you know that was it was six years ago you know what i mean but i, I just wish they would have listened a little bit more and because I, I i wasn't a piece of shit you know what i mean i i, I listened every day I, I did what i was told i volunteered uh i, I was a awesome shot on the range the classroom portion of it i enjoyed i stayed awake during the classes the physical fitness part all that good stuff you know i i wasn't a i wasn't a crappy marine and but you know like i said it's it's water under the bridge now it's all good you know i didn't die um i'm I'm stronger from it i i know what i can and cannot take and uh it definitely pushed me to my limit i will say that it I, I think I'd rather get blown up again than have a burst appendix. That that is not something I don't wish that on my my worst enemy, honestly. It it is a pain unlike any other. It sucks. It just flat out sucks. All right. So you get recycled and you finish infantry school. That's done. Yep. You still want to be a scout sniper. Do, do, do you get a chance at that? Uh not really. No, I didn't get a Why? I didn't necessarily do because the unit that I got assigned to, which was 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, um, when I got to the unit January 25th of 2013, uh, we were in a current workup for our deployment, which was going to be happening in September of 13. So, you know, pretty much all the, the Scout Sniper Platoon had, they had their, their people that they wanted. Um, so it was just kind of like a, it's kind of like a bad time, so to speak, bad timing. But, um, you know, the guys that I went through boot camp with, you know, obviously they didn't rupture their appendix. So they were already in the battalion. And, uh, one of my buddies, Ploof, I can't remember his first name, but a good buddy of mine, Ploof, um, he had actually joined, uh, one nine scout sniper platoon. And so when I got to the unit, you know, he was like, Oh shit, man, haven't seen you in a while. I was like, I was like, yeah, man. I was like, I'd really love to join, scout sniper platoon i'd like to do the end doc i'd like to do you know i'd I'd like to hang out with them i'd like for them to see who i am and that i can shoot and that i'm willing to learn and uh it was just one of those things that we just didn't necessarily have the time um we were in the middle of a workup for our deployment and it just didn't work out that way in afghanistan i got to deal a lot with the snipers that were attached to us and that was really cool but as for joining and or being in the end doc program no i didn't i never got a legitimate chance at that and it's something that I really wish I would have got the chance to do. Do Do you regret it? I mean, do you regret not getting that opportunity? Um, yeah, it's kind of hard to say because, you know, I, I'm, I'm happy that I got to go to Afghanistan with, 
with the guys that I trained with um, and the guys that I knew. And But on the flip side, I wish I would have been with the scout sniper platoon because maybe what had happened to me wouldn't have happened. I wouldn't have been in that situation and I would have had a little bit better opportunity to, to do the things that I really wanted to do uh, in the Marine Corps, which was take very accurate shots on an enemy target. And, and I just really liked the idea of shooting. I, I, I did marksmanship training in in Marine Corps ROTC program in Beaufort, South Carolina. I was nationally ranked as a freshman and, I really enjoyed taking my time and shooting. I'd rather not shoot full auto and miss, you know, a hundred rounds. I'd rather take one really accurate shot and account for it. So it was, that was the, the beauty of, of being a scout sniper and being attached to them was the, the accuracy, the pinpoint, the stalking, the, the sneaky, the, the reconnaissance of it. I loved all of that. Kind of a big picture question. And we'll get to your, your injury and, and, and everything, but, you know, sometimes the way things work out in the military, we always kind of remark on the podcast that, you know, sometimes the military takes care of you in weird ways and, and in other ways it doesn't. Um, and, you know, had your appendix not ruptured and had you not had to be recycled and, you know, you get through uh, infantry training when you do and you get to your unit when you do and maybe they're not going up on deployment and maybe you do get to go to scout cyber school and your life is totally different. Do you ever think about those things i do um and and to go back to infantry school i remember i remember being highly upset that the guys that i went to boot camp with and had went to infantry school with the first time i was really upset that i wasn't going to graduate with those guys you know those were my brothers those were the guys that i that's all i knew in the marine corps was those guys and and so when my appendix ruptured and and i had to get recycled I, i thought that you know, I'd never see them again. I thought I'd never get the same opportunity. And, and, uh, I remember my mom and my dad all telling me, you know, everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. And, and I hear that all the time, you know, including up to this very second. And I still don't know what that reason is. And because, (laughs) because everything happens for a reason. So if I, if I would have graduated on time without rupturing my appendix and getting recycled, where would I have gone? You know what I mean? Would I have gone to another infantry unit that never deployed and I'd be sitting here with 10 fingers or, you know, I, I, I don't know. And it's just one of those things that it, I think about it every now and then, especially if, you know, someone like you ask and, and I sit here and think about it. But it, I, I try not to because what happened happened. You know, my pinning ruptured. I got recycled. I, I went on to another uh, another infantry class and then I, got, I went to my unit and what happened happened. And it's just that's just the way it is. You know, I, I try not to dwell on the past and think about what could have been and what should have been. Sure. You know I mean, so. yeah. And, and I only ask because some people say, no, they never do. And some people do. It's just, I, I think it's different for everybody. So I was curious where you sat with the whole thing. But so as you mentioned, I mean, you literally spent only a year at your unit before you got a plane to go to Afghanistan, right? That's correct. So like I said, um, so the way the Marine Corps infantry works is you graduate infantry school, you have your little graduation or whatever you call it. And my graduation was actually January 25th of 2013. And the day that you graduate, you graduate real early in the morning, about 0809. And you already pretty much have your quote unquote orders to your next unit. And you have someone from that unit come pick you guys up and take you to your unit for check-in. And the uh, the day that I checked into to one nine, 
January 25th, 2013, exactly 365 days later, exactly one year later, I got blown up in Afghanistan. So I was in my unit for one exact year before I was, you know, forcefully removed and sent off to, you know, get recovery after being hurt. So were you excited about your deployment? I was, um, I was looking forward to it. Um, we did a lot of, a lot of grueling training, uh, leading up to it. I did, uh, I graduated, you know, like I said, I got to the unit January 25th and, uh, my birthday is February 19th and I spent my birthday in, uh, in Bridgeport, California at the mountain warfare training center for the cold weather package. So we were in negative 25 degree weather and about fucking, I don't know, hundred feet of snow is felt like, you know, it's just wow. stupid. And, and honestly, I'd rather, I'd rather get blown up again than do Bridgeport. That was probably the most miserable time of my life. I'm not a cold person. <laughs> I'm not a snow person. It, it sucked. It's just what it is, man. It, it sucked. And, uh, you know, after we did that, well, while we were doing that, we did, uh, we did Hawthorne, Nevada. Um, it's about an hour and a half, two hours away from Bridgeport. And it's in the middle of the desert on the mountain range. And it's actually at an army base and the range there is meant for vehicles. Well, of course, Marine infantry being who we are, we did it on foot and it's straight up a mountain. And, uh, there's a very infamous event happened there that really sucks, but, um, kind of widely known at the time. Those were, uh, seven Marines were killed, on at that range with a mortar accident 60 millimeter mortar they um they double loaded it at night and ended up killing seven seven marines wow in one night injuring a few others and uh you know so it it was just it just seemed like the training never stopped we were like okay we'll we'll go from bridgeport california negative 25 degrees and fourteen thousand feet above sea level and then we'll go to uh, Nevada where it's freaking 110 degrees out and now we're walking up a mountain doing a range a live fire range and so it just it the the training just sucked you know it's good training obviously but it just sucked and and then we did a uh, infantry training exercise ITX out in 29 Palms in August or yeah June July August, yeah June July August and and it was just hot as fuck out there is just the best way to describe it and um, we actually were viewed and, and looked at by some of the top commanders and top generals in the Marine Corps. And we pretty much won that bid to be the, the last combat deployment for the Marine Corps. And, you know, we, as a unit, as a, as a company, as platoon, as a team, we, we worked our asses off and made sure that we did everything correct and that we were the best ones to, you know, the best ones to go. And that was a proud moment and, and it was awesome. But I mean, pretty much just Bridgeport, Hawthorne, Nevada, which was pretty much the same thing. And then ITX and then it was deployment time, you know? So right, it, it was a, a long, what, January to September, um, a long, you know, cup few months and, but short at the same time, it was like, okay, we're going to go from this, uh, this mount town, you know, where it's just simunition rounds and we're actually going to go over to Afghanistan and do it for real. <laughs> it no, was kind of like, you better be ready for it, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. So when you hit the ground in Afghanistan, uh, you end up in the Helmand province. Tell me what you're thinking, what you're feeling, and how ready you guys were. What was kind of your mission there as well? 
so uh you know we got there like fuck i can't remember the exact days you know obviously it was september 13 right uh, towards the end of september uh we landed at camp bastion which is the british side of camp leatherneck and um kind of spent a few days there and i was charlie company with one nine so charlie company we were the best company quote unquote and if there's any alpha or bravo guys listening to this later on in, in the in the week or whenever uh it's just kind of pure facts is charlie company was the best and so we got tasked to go out and live at a patrol base you know made out of hesco barriers out in the middle of afghanistan in between some villages and uh, it was called patrol base boldak uh, and then uh we got out there you know we we waited a few days at, at uh camp leatherneck for everyone to get in all of our gear to get in to get acclimated and and while at camp leatherneck it was kind of it was kind of just like being on a base i mean i didn't necessarily really feel threatened i didn't feel like anything bad was going to happen i mean we're on a huge massive base there were you know state department contractors out there there was cia and and dia and all kinds of people out there and and so it was you, you knew you're in a different country you knew you're in somewhere hostile but you didn't necessarily feel threatened or anything like that and it wasn't until it was like, all right, you know, everyone put their gear on, you know, go condition three, put a mag in the weapon. Uh, we're about to go out and, and go live at your patrol base. And, you know, once you went outside the wire, it was condition one. We we're riding the back of seven tons. And that's when it kind of got real. And I remember taking a photo of uh, myself and my, my buddy Melgar, Jose Melgar. And uh, I was like, well, fuck, you know, like this is this is the first picture of the of the deployment, you know what I mean? Like we're outside the wire now. This is, this is big boy rules. And, and, uh, we went out to our patrol base and from there on, it was just, it was work, you know, it was all the training got put into, put into action and it was cool. You know, that's what infantry guys train for. Right. So, so take me from your time there in September of 2013 to January 24th, 2014 operational tempo was what how often were you out there did you ever see any action prior to then so we had uh we had an entire company at our at our patrol base it was a decent sized patrol base nothing too big um uh it's gone now so i can kind of talk details about it but um we had an entire company so we had what four platoons of marines and we had the jordanians the the Jordan Jordanian army, um, they stood all of our posts because that wasn't our mission. So we had four platoons and so we had different cycles and each cycle was for a week. So you had your, you had your platoon, you had your, your patrol cycle, you had your QRF cycle, you had your duty cycle and you had your rest quote unquote rest cycle. So each one of those is for a week. So your, your, the operational tempo was, was up. I mean, we were, we were the farthest South American forces in Afghanistan at the time. And our main mission was to go out and kill the Taliban. We were the, we were the defense to the South side of Camp Bastion and Camp Leatherneck. And that was our mission. We were the last combat operation, you know, deployment for the Marine Corps and is what I was told. And, and so every day we were out, you know, if you were the, if you were the patrol cycle, it was every day, you know, for a week straight. And then if you were a QRF, it was, you know, we QRF is QRF. We just wait until, uh, you know, something bad happens to someone else. <laughs> exactly. And then we would go out and then, you know, your duty cycle was just, um, 
fucking G-Boss watch, like your your camera watch or uh, or MWR watch or, you know, doing working parties inside the patrol base, whatever company guns needed or something like that, you know. And then your rest cycle, that was, we call it rest, but you'd go back to Camp Leatherneck for a week and and get mail and get some showers and repair vehicles and get weapon parts and ammunition and mail and and all that shit. It was it wasn't necessarily a break, but it was better than nothing. We got running water and running showers and everything. But if you were the patrol cycle, it was every day. We were outside the wire every day, you know, pretty much going out at like zero dark thirty, zero four, zero five, um, and and going out there to look for the Taliban. You know, we would get intel via our sources and and we'd go out there and hunt, and that's what we did all day. And then um, if you were duty cycle, if you're the duty platoon at night, you would go do patrols. So we'd go do uh, – I can't remember what they're called now, but about an hour and a half, two hours of patrol. But we'd only go about a mile, two miles away from the base gotcha. and uh, just kind of sit there at, in the middle of the night, you know, zero one zero two, and just sit there and, and listen and watch and observe and – you know, most of the time, the Taliban, they didn't necessarily act at night because they knew that we could see them with our night vision capabilities, and they never shot at us because they knew that we could shoot back and be more effective at night. And so it was, it was really boring, and then once it got cold, it sucked really bad you're out there just sitting there on the ground and freezing your balls off, and that sucked. But, I mean, it, it was just every day, and, and we saw contact, I mean – we saw contacts the first like week we were out there because the unit that we replaced was two, two um, out of camp Lejeune. And so they, they stayed for a little bit while we were there to get our feet wet and they would take us out. Well, the Taliban, you know, they, they know who the, who the salty guys are and they know who the new guys are. So they would see us and they would just start shooting and see how we react. So it, it wasn't anything, after that second week to just get shot at, it was just kind of normal. And, and, and we just kind of adapted to it and we would, we would do what we do and we'd go out there and slay bodies. And I mean, that, that was, that was fun, you know? And, and, um, it, it just, it, it didn't slow down. It, it slowed right. down for a little bit, kind of in the winter months. And, but from the time I was there in September to January 24th, when I got hurt, I mean, hell the day before I got hurt, um, the ANA, they actually hit a big ass IED right outside of our gate. And I remember having to go out for that. And, you know, they, those guys, they rode around in, in, in Humvees with no armor. And so they, they hit a freaking about a 60 pound IED on the back, right rear tire of a Humvee. And the whole back half of that truck was gone. And I remember looking through the, uh, the optic of my machine gun and just seeing, you know, an, an A and A soldier in the back seat with half of his damn head missing. You know, and it's just, wow. you know, brain on the floor and blood leaking out and everything. And and like I said, it was just it was just constant. I mean, you know, our guys would go out and step on IEDs. Our guys would go out and hit IEDs. We get shot at. Guys would get shot. We we shoot back and we'd kill Taliban. And it just never end. You know, we luckily we never never had any casualties. We had a lot of Purple Hearts. A lot of guys. Um, get shot a lot of guys step on ieds um guys like me get blown up with rockets i mean we were out there and doing it and it was good shit and and i'd go back and do it again all right so january 25th 2014 that's the date of 
when you got blown up, as you say. Uh, but yep. kind of take me through that day. You get up in the morning. Is it a normal morning? Anything out of the ordinary? Or is it all just kind of uh, uh, a, a normal kind of routine day? So January 25th, 2014, um, we're on our QRF cycle that week for my platoon. And I remember that week being, you know, and I'll, I'll talk about the, the week itself, uh, a few days leading up to it. It was it was busy. Like I said, the day before I got hurt, we had that, that ANA patrol hit that IED. Um, the day before that we had a platoon getting some contact. We went out there and, and supported them with our vehicles. And the day I got hurt, January 25th, um, it was kind of an emotional day all around together in the sense of at the time I was engaged, I had a, I had a fiance back home and one of her close friends and a friend of mine had committed suicide a few days before beautiful, beautiful girl named Devin, um, was in the Hooters calendar, uh, super sweet, a model, everything. And she had some stuff going on in her life, felt the need to, to shoot herself in the head and, and killed herself. And wow. it, it sucks. And, it, and I've had to deal with enough suicides after, after my deployment and everything. And it's just, it just sucks. It is what it is. But, uh, I remember that day, January 25th, that day was the day that my fiance, ex fiance was, was going to the funeral. So I remember, you know, sitting there kind of waking up like, Oh damn, you know, Casey's going to, to Devin's funeral today. That kind of sucks. You know, it was kind of just like a shitty day all around. And, and, uh, the day was kind of quiet, nothing out of the nor ordinary. I don't necessarily remember what we were doing before. And, um, I want to say fourth platoon, some, somebody, well, one of those platoons had went out on a foot patrol down to a village called Shawal. And it was directly south of our patrol base. And it was a village where um, it was about 50-50 IEDs, 50-50 IEDs, and 50-50 uh, gunfights. Like, you know, you go down there, you could step on an ID or you get shot. And it was just one of those places as like, or you could go in there and nothing happened. But um, it was a pretty big village, a lot of tight spaces, a lot of tight roads. It wasn't a place that I really liked to go because of that reason. It just felt like, felt like a bad part of town is just what it felt like and it's just that bad gut feeling and so the platoon went out there um on a foot patrol took some contact from the village to our direct east called habibabad and habibabad was pretty much the wild wild west there was no ieds over there it was just straight gunfights. and we had in between our patrol base and habibabad was a was a place we called central wadi road just big dry river riverbed you know a lot of cars drove through there it's just like a main transportation avenue and uh in between to get into habibabad there was like a little berm like a little hill if you will and then once you crossed over that hill it was game on you had about a five minute window of getting shot at so they took some fire from some fighters from habibabad they they cut across the wadi and and went into the village of shawal and, and popped some shots off at our guys and and so they called for, for QRF, you know, hey, you know, we took some contact this and the third. So we all mounted up. So I remember getting into the trucks and, you know, for the majority of the deployment, I was a driver in the sense of I was one of the few Marines in the company that didn't have a DUI on my record and a shitty driving record. So I got kind of <laughs> trained to drive. I got trained to drive the MRAPs and the MATV. So when my platoon would take all six Vicks out, you know, I was usually the driver. I usually drove for my platoon commander, which was really cool. But um, That's a great anecdotal story, by the way. 
Yeah, exactly. We had <laughs> stupid shit happen to our deployment. So, and we didn't have motor T attached to us. So you got infantry guys playing motor T, but, um, that day we were only taking four vehicles out. And, and so I was going to be a gunner and the, the vehicle I was in was Vic four. And like I said, I normally drove Vic six and was attached to Vic six. And Vic four was actually one of my buddy's trucks, uh, Zachary Solomon's. And he was actually at Camp Leatherneck for a ground penetrating radar uh, class. He was taking a GPR class, learn how to use that. And he wasn't there, obviously. So I, I took the spot. And I remember um, my buddy Carmona, Gabriel Carmona, who was our dog handler. Uh, he had just had a baby the day before we deployed. And he was our dog handler, had a baby before he deployed. And he was like, hey, you just, he was like, let me take the, let me take the gun. He's like, I want to go. And I was like, no, man. I was like, you're the, you're the fucking dog handler. Like, you don't need to go. I was like, you know, I don't want anything to happen to you. You know what I mean? Like, it, it was just weird. I never thought about it any other time, but then, and, uh, another buddy of mine, Sean Neary, he wanted to get into my Vic for whatever reason. I can't remember why. And I told him, no, that I, I'd like to be in Vic four, whatever. And, um, I remember sitting in the back of the truck for a little bit because like I said, we got the call to mount up, but we never got the call to leave. And I remember just sitting in the back of the truck. I had my plate carrier on. I had the gu- I had the 240 mounted in the turret. I had everything ready to go. I was just sitting in the back of the truck and I, I remember taking a nap and mm-hmm. waking up. And when I woke up from my nap, I just had a bad feeling. I just, I, I didn't feel good. Not like, not health wise. I just didn't, I just had a bad feeling. Just the day didn't feel right. And, and finally after, fuck, I don't know, an hour and a half or so, we got the call like, all right, Hey, mount up. You guys are leaving to go out there to support their X track. Now, let uh, me ask you real quick. Sorry to interrupt Alex. When you say you had a bad feeling, was it a bad feeling about you or just a bad feeling in general? That was something was going to happen to the guys who were out there. What was the bad feeling? It was just a bad feeling in general. It was just, it's, it's hard to explain over the phone, obviously, and, and no, I mean, anyone else. No, we, we, we talk about it a lot because w- w- when you do these patrols, when you're outside the wire a lot, th- there's a general sense of how many times can I roll the dice before my number gets called, right? Like how yeah, many times course. can I? How many times can we go through this exercise and come out either clean or relatively unscathed on the other side before something really bad happens? And, and that creates a lot of angst and and, and fe- it's fair to say fear, but you know you get yeah. that sinking feeling in your stomach, like man, just something just doesn't feel right. I, I I mean I've had that. I think we've all had that at some point in time. Yeah, and and, and that's exactly that's exactly what it was, man. It was just that that feeling in your stomach where. And like I said, I don't know if it was just because I just woke up from this quote unquote nap or, or what, but I just, I remember just having like a bad gut feeling and I, and I couldn't pinpoint, I can't pinpoint it to this very second. It just, just the whole day. I I didn't think that, I didn't think the guys that were out there on patrol were in danger. Um, You know, they, they had said that they hadn't taken contact in a while. They, they shot back obviously, and they hadn't taken contact in a while and that they were going to, they were getting ready to break contact and, and walk back to the patrol base and they just kind of wanted some some vehicles out there to to cover their six but the whole time i was thinking i was like man it's just it just doesn't feel right just and it, and it got worse that feeling got worse so we got we got told to mount up and uh we ended up leaving the wire and and i'm up in the turret of vic four and you know obviously i'm facing the rear of the convoys that's what vic four does and 
we, I remember us taking a really abrupt halt and I was like, what the fuck, you know, damn truck, those trucks don't, they stop on a dime, but when they do, it's, it's, it's rough because they're fucking 40,000 pounds and, um, and big air brakes and shit like that. I got slammed into the turret. Like, you know, why the hell are we stopping? Well, come to find out Vic one had saw an IED and it was one of those, one of those IEDs where they, you know, they, when you dig a hole in the ground and you put something in it and you cover it with dirt, the ground's never going to be flat again. It kind of sinks in. Right. And it's just tall tale signs to look at when you're looking for IEDs. And Vic one saw one and I was like, fuck, I was like, that's not good. And, um, and, and, and that just kind of, that intensified the bad feeling. I was like, fuck man. I was like, we're, we're not even that far from the patrol base and we're already seeing a huge IED, probably a big yellow jug underneath the ground with fucking 60, 70 pounds with HME in it, homemade explosives. And I was just like, this isn't good. And I remember leaning down inside the truck and yelling at my driver. His name was, uh, Lester Frank, funny first name, Lester. We gave him shit for it all the time. He was, he was a redhead like myself. And I think I was the cooler of the redheads. Sorry, Frank. <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and, he was our driver and I remember leaning down inside the turret and I said something along the lines of, you know, Frank, if you hit that ID, I'm going to fucking kill you. You know what I mean? Cause I was in the turret and yeah, his dumb ass, you know, I didn't want him driving over the stupid thing and blowing us up on the way to go save our other buddies. And, and, and when we drove by, I, I managed to kind of push myself up over the turret and look over and I saw the ID. I saw how indented the ground was. And I was like, Holy shit, man. Like, that would have fucked our trucks up. That would have been a bad day. And, and like I said, it just intensified that bad feeling that, that whole time. I was just like, fuck man, like this isn't good. This, this whole day just seems real sketchy. It just, it just didn't feel good. And, um, you know, leading up to leading up to when I got blown up, uh, we ended up going down central Wadi road and we were in between the villages We were all the vehicles were facing South. So we're in between Habibabad, which is to the left of our vehicles, which would have been east, and Shawal, the village to our right, which would have been west. And the the platoon we were supporting was in was in Shawal, so there to the right of our trucks. Well, the area that we stopped in was just the shittiest area that we could have stopped in. And I remember that just really solidified my bad attitude and bad feeling about the whole day. And my platoon sergeant, kind of backtracked a little bit, my platoon sergeant, Staff Sergeant Lane, Michael Lane, he was our, our vehicle commander for that VIG, so he's in the passenger seat. And he had actually just got back from Camp Leatherneck after getting shot in the shoulder about a week prior. Um, he took a, a 7.62x54R round through the fender of our MRAP. It hit his pinky and then ricocheted off the rifle and hit his shoulder. And he went to Camp Leatherneck and spent a week there brushing off a freaking gunshot wound to the shoulder, come back, and he's on his first mission back out with us. And I remember telling Staff Sergeant Lane, I was like, dude, we are not in a fucking good spot. Like, this is not good because Vic 4 being the last vehicle I was supposed to face to the rear, to watch the rear of the convoy. Well, to the rear of the convoy was about 20 yards and then there was a big hill in a corner that i couldn't mm -hmm. see around so if a v-bid or somebody with a rocket or whatever were to run around that corner or drive around that corner 
I would have zero chance to engage without figuring out who it was because we had ROEs over there, of course. Right. So I couldn't just shoot. Well, I was like, hey, Staff Sergeant, I said, I can't, I can't cover the rear of the vehicle like I want to with this 240. I said, I'm going to face to the left of the vehicle east to Habibabad, and I'm going to watch in between these compounds, uh, which was – there's about a – I'd say – fucking 200 meter like straight line from my from the barrel of my gun to this little ditch and a little like some trees so i'm like okay well if there's if there's going to be any action if anybody's going to shoot at this vehicle it's going to be from that tree line right there in between these compounds the direct line of sight it's a it's a kill alley and so i was like i'm going to leave the gun there and he's like all right you know that's fine just keep your eyes open so i'm like all right well it was about 1500 so about three o'clock in the afternoon and you know the kids are outside playing um elders village elders are sitting outside doing what they do there's there's teenage boys tending to their to their fields and and stuff like that and it, it was just a normal day in the sense of the locals which is kind of comforting if you will because the locals if they start freaking out then you know something's going on so my platoon sergeant, we only had one radio for that vehicle. Well, my platoon sergeant needed to go back and forth between vehicle tack and company tack. So he'd be like, hey, you just switch me over to company. So I would take a brief second and look down, change the channel over to one, back to our company tack and look back up. It took about, what, one, one full second, you know, nothing, nothing crazy. And about 20 minutes or so of that, you know, Hey, you just changed channel. Hey, you just changed channel, whatever, whatever. I noticed he told me to change the channel one last time. Hey, you just changed the channel for me. I said, so I'm good to go. Change the channel. I look back up. All those people, all the locals were gone. So I was like, fuck, you know, I said that to him, fuck. And, uh, you know, made sure my weapon was good. Made sure my, my M27 IAR was, was condition one ready to go in case I needed to use that at close range. And, uh, I remember thinking to myself like, fuck, you know, it's, shit's about to go down. So I looked at my watch. Well, my watch said 1530 and I knew from experience that we had about a 10 to 15 minute window between the, the village populace leaving and the Taliban attacking us because the Taliban would come in. They would tell all the locals to leave, to get out, to go hide because they were about to attack the Americans. And so I, I, I leaned down inside the truck and I said, hey, Staff Sergeant, I said, all the people are gone. We're about to get hit, just so you know. And he's like, all right, you know, keep your eyes open and, and be ready. I said, good to go. And I looked back up and boom, that's when it happened. Um, from my knowledge, from what I was told was uh, an RPG gunner popped a compound wall about 30 meters to my left, uh, popped a corner. And, and like I said, it was a shitty, a shitty place to sit. He had the upper hand on me in the sense of he could see directly down inside my turret. He had the higher ground, which I, I hated. And vehicle one had a higher ground in front of them. And, you know, I, I, I did everything right in the sense of, Hey, we're about to get hit. Everyone's gone. And, and I looked back up to be vigilant to start scanning and, and, and all that. And I didn't even get a chance. He just, I guess he popped the compound wall shot the rocket it hit the feed tray on my 240 uh the ammo can 
and from then on it was it was game on everything changed did you see it at all i get that question a lot and i actually love that question and 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 i say no i didn't see it i didn't hear it i didn't feel it and the reason why i say that is because if you look up what how fast an rpg7 flies i think it covers like 3200 or 24 or 2500 feet per second or something stupid like that um there is no reacting at that close you know what i mean it's it's pretty much a point and shoot weapon at that time it's an unguided rocket um they're super inaccurate at distance we've i've had plenty of them shot at me before and they're they're inaccurate they're they're free flying uh rocket with stabilizing fins but at that at that distance, man, you, you you don't hear it, you don't see it. I just I just felt pain, and that's all I knew. And and if you if I had my buddy Sean on here, he was in Big Three. Um, he'll tell you, and he told me recently at a buddy of ours funeral, he told me that he heard the he heard the rocket go off, and when he looked back at my vehicle, all he saw was my lifeless body slamming slamming into the turret and falling inside the truck. And, and he had no idea whether I was alive or dead. He just, and, and it kind of pains me to, to hear that, you know, so, so, so long after I heard this about a year or two ago and um, he was like, dude, he's like, I just thought you were dead. And, and I was like, well, I wasn't, you know what I mean? Like it fucking sucked, but I wasn't, I wasn't dead and, and I was in a lot of pain, but no, I did not hear it. I didn't see it. Um, there was no reaction for me. I, I, and when I think when I think real hard about it, you know, I can I can completely see the compound that he was in. I can see the corner of the wall he was in, and I can see everything about it. I just can't see him, and I can't see the rocket. And and that and that's what sucks is that I didn't I didn't he didn't give me a chance. You know what I mean? Right. And I I think that's what sucks about everything in life is you didn't even get a chance. You know, I, I didn't get a chance to fight back. I didn't get a chance to to really do anything i just got i got hit and and it's not because i was being complacent it wasn't because i was being stupid he just got the upper hand on me and and uh fast forward a little bit when when my platoon came back from afghanistan my platoon commander told me that they actually knew the name of the guy i actually knew the name of the the guy who blew me up at one point i can't remember his name now but um supposedly he was an rpg specialist brought in from Pakistan to attack our patrol base about a week, a week later, a week, you know, a week after I got hurt and he saw the opportunity to, to, to get a, to get a Marine and he took me out. And, and as a warrior, as, as a fighter, I got to say kudos to him. He, he saw the opportunity and he took it and he got me, but he didn't get me. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm still fucking here and I'm, I still laugh and, and, and say, fuck you to him every day. But, you know, he's, he's dead in the dirt. You know what I mean? Like he had his chance to, to kill me and he had a, every opportunity to do it and he failed. And to that, I say, fuck him. You know what I mean? It's right. It, it is what it is. It's kind of like a big fuck you to him. And, and I'm happy for it. You know, at one point in my life, I wasn't happy, but, um, but to go back to, to that, that day, no, man, I, I, I didn't hear it. I didn't feel it. It's just a hot pain is what it is. Okay, so you fall into the vehicle. Are you did, did when do you regain consciousness? Uh that is unknown. Uh um, okay. still I'm still not sure because 
so inside my vehicle, I had my driver, Frank, who I mentioned before, the vehicle commander in the passenger seat was uh, Staff Sergeant Lane. And in the back seat, under, like pretty much underneath my legs, underneath my feet was our corpsman, um, Doc Slaughter and Doc Jacob Slaughter. And uh, he is pretty much the one that saved my life. But um, let's see. I'm trying to well, think. what were your injuries at that time? I mean, you said it hit the feed tray of the, two, uh, of the 240 Bravo. So it didn't hit so, you directly, but obviously it's, it's extremely close, pro, close proximity. Yeah, anybody that's ever been behind a 240 Bravo knows that the feed tray is within arm, arm's length. I mean, it's, it's fuck. It's within six inches. You know what I mean? Um, I had traumatic amputation of the right hand, uh, my 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 right hand thumb, my index finger, my middle finger, my wrist, and the inside of my right arm up to my elbow, which is mush, was gone. Um, so like it was separate... just mangled mess. Like they couldn't do anything with it. Obviously. Oh yeah, it was completely gone. I got okay. I have surgery photos, um, you know, taken well after, but it it's pretty much looked like what the surgery photos have. And if I ever if I can, I'll 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 send them to you, and so you can see they're pretty gruesome. But uh, but yeah, so I had I had that I had uh, I had the severed femoral, femoral artery in my right leg. Um, now really, I was tr- that just from shrapnel or? Because your legs oh, are yeah. your legs are inside the truck at this point in time. Yep, but when you have, you know, you got to think the turret is armored, yes. and the so, rocket, the, R- the RPG seven is an anti armor rocket. So when it exploded, you know, all that shrapnel, the shrapnel from the machine gun, the shrapnel from the T and E, the shrapnel from the rocket itself, and and everything else just ricocheted off and down inside the truck. So, you know. My my right leg got hit. Um, pretty much everything that wasn't covered by my plate carrier or my body armor was peppered with shrapnel. My face, um, my my hands, my my left hand, um, everything, man, er- everything. And and uh, it's it's a really weird sensation. And and if you ever watch any of those movies where you know the guy gets blown up or whatever, and and in the in the theater, it, all you hear is that ringing and that that loud yep. distant. Yep. That's exactly what it sounds like. Everything's slowed down. Um, your hearing is completely gone, and it just sucks. And inside the truck, we have uh, we have what's called halon systems, and it's the exact opposite of a fire extinguisher. It sucks the oxygen out of the air. And so, you know, when you inhale helium, your voice gets real high pitched and, and funny sounding. Well, when you get hit with halon, it sucks the oxygen out of the air. So your voice sounds like this. And it's just really fucking weird. And and I remember yelling at my doc, at my corpsman to help me. And I remember my voice sounding like that real deep and real slowed. And, and, you know, I got told later that it was the Halon system that, that made it all sound so fucking weird. But, you know, when I got hit, I guess I slammed into the turret and fell down inside the truck. And I, and I want to say it was a good 30 to 40 seconds before I gained consciousness uh, or consciousness. I, I don't know if fuck, it could have been five seconds. It could have been two minutes. I have I have no clue. But during that time of, I guess, being unconscious, I remember thinking to myself that, holy shit, I'm dead. And 
and that to this day is still kind of a hard thing to think about because the pain was so intense and, and I don't know why, but the left side of my face is completely unscathed. I don't know how, I don't know why, I don't care, but the whole left side of my face was completely unscathed, but right on my cheekbone, like right underneath my eye, it was really fucking hot. And I was thinking to myself in complete darkness, you know, unconscious, I guess, holy shit, I just got shot in the face. You know, you know, damn, they caught me slipping. I got hit in the face by a sniper. I'm dead. You know, I, I got a fiance back home. I got a brother. I got a small young brother at home. Um, you know, I got my mother, my father, my, my grandparents. I got a whole bunch of people. I was like, fuck, I just died. I just got shot in the face. Like, this sucks. And there is no cliche light at the end of the tunnel. There is no all that shit. It was just really dark. I remember... And it sounds weird and, and people may not believe you when you say it, but until you go through it, you'll never know. And, but I did see memories. I saw, I saw my fiance's face. I saw, um, I, saw, I remember seeing something to do with soccer. Um, I remember seeing my brother's face, my mom's face, just kind of like flashbacks, if you will but that there was no light. Like I said, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. It was just darkness. And, and I was like, fuck man, like this sucks. Like I'm dead. I just got shot in the face and there's no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. There's no like heaven, if you will. And I, I was thinking to that to myself and it's a really hard thing to think about during that time. And, and I remember thinking to myself, well, shit, I'm still thinking like, I must not be dead, you know, like, how am I still thinking if, if I'm dead? And I, and I remember it being like really weird. And that's when I opened my eyes. And when I opened my eyes, I could see the, the smoke and the halon system had went off and I could see through the turret, you know, the light, I could see the sunshine. And, um, and, and that's when I finally came to and realized like, Oh fuck, I'm still alive. And I touched my face with my left hand and I was like, all right, well, my, my, my face isn't, my face doesn't have a big ass hole in it. So my face is still there. So must, something else must have happened. And then that's kind of when I started to do a self-assessment on myself. Did you try to move your right arm? I did. So as I'm laying there, I had my feet, my feet were facing the front of the vehicle. Um, I was kind of cockeyed laying half on the turret stand, half on the seat. I was in an uncomfortable position. I know that for sure. But um, I remember kind of doing a self-assessment on myself. I remember picking up my left hand and, and kind of putting it in front of my face and wiggling my fingers and moving my arm. I remember taking my left hand and putting it on my left thigh and, and rubbing my thigh and feeling and feeling that my leg was still there. I remember wiggling my toes, moving my ankle. I was like, okay, my left arm, my left leg are still there. I remember putting my hand on my right leg and feeling the entry hole to my severed femoral. And I, I couldn't see it. I didn't know. I just remember I could feel blood. I could feel like a tacky, tackiness, if you will, like a wet spot. And I wiggled my right, my right foot, right toes, moved it, you know, everything. And, and I remember my right leg was just hot. It was just really hot pain. And uh, I, that's when I picked up my right arm. And when I did, you know, over there we wear frog suits, you know, long sleeve. And 
when I picked up my right arm, man, just just take a long sleeve shirt and dip it in a paper shredder full of red paint. That's what it looked like. When oh, I picked God. my arm up, it was just and and right now I, I can't I can't pinpoint or pick out details of what it looked like, but laying there in the back of the truck, I remember just seeing just blood and just mangled meat is just the best way. Did it scare you? No. Um, I, obviously, I, honestly, I think I was in shock, but I remember, I remember, like I said, I remember picking up my arm and I pretty much just gave up my arm at my, uh, at my elbow. I was like, fuck, my arm's gone. And I didn't feel it was, it was really hot. I, like, I keep saying I didn't feel anything, but I felt hotness, like, like, like heat, um, you know, from the nerves being severed and the shrapnel and all that shit. And I, it's just, it was just really fucking hot. And I picked up my arm and, and just looked at it for a split second and was like, well, my arm's gone. Fuck it. Like there's, I got, I need to get help. I knew I was in trouble. And, and that's when I looked over at my corpsman and my corpsman had took, um, you know, I took the fire, I took the explosion, I took the shrapnel. He took the concussion to the point where he has seizures today and like as, as of today, and I haven't talked to him in a while, but I know that he got a purple heart for it. And uh, I know that he currently has seizures and uh, he got his bell rung. I mean, that's just the best way to describe it. Uh, Apparently he passed out a few times while working on me. Um, He had no idea where he was. And I remember shaking him. I grabbed his plate carrier with my left hand. And I remember saying, Doc, help me, help me, help me. I'm, I was like, I'm fucked up, Doc. I, I need help. And kind of shaking him too. And um, I remember him needing some trauma shears. And I had some trauma shears on my side sappy. Well, when he pulled them out of my side sappy, it was just the handles. The, 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 the trauma shears got completely destroyed in the blast. And uh, I remember him yelling for more trauma shears and asking who else was hurt and my platoon sergeant was hurt as well he took a big piece of shrapnel through his arm um my driver was fine and i just remember my corpsman man he his training kicked in and and i and i can't thank him enough i'll never repay him and i remember his training kicked in and he took out his morphine and you know hit me in the leg with it and he fucking counted you know one one thousand two one thousand three one thousand four and I remember hearing this shit and I was like, all right, doc's taking care of me. And I told him, I said, I said, doc, I said, something's wrong with my right leg. And to my knowledge, he put one tourniquet on my right leg and that's what saved my life. And, and I think there was about five or six tourniquets on my damn right arm. You know what I mean? Like to stop the bleeding. And from there, it was just, uh, I was trying to stay awake and I I had shrapnel and dirt all in my eyes. My, my eyelashes had been singed off from the heat. My eyebrows had been singed off. My tips of my hair were burned. Um, I remember doc just doing what he could. He, you know, (laughs) I'm, I remember this and and it takes me telling me the story to remember this shit to kind of jog my memory. Right. My platoon sergeant was in the front seat and, I remember him hearing his voice. I didn't see him. Obviously. I remember hearing his voice and he goes, how is he doc? You know, how's Yidus? And I remember my corpsman yelling back to him. He's fucked up staff sergeant. Like he's fucked up. And I remember my staff sergeant going, 
don't tell him that. Tell him that he's going to be fine. <laughs> <laughs> and so I remember, I remember Doc leaning over and he was like, he was like tapping me on the chest on my plate care. And he was like, Yetus, he was like, you're fine. You're going to be okay. And I was like, I fucking know, Doc. I was like, just fucking help me. Like, just help me. That's all I wanted. <laughs> and I, I wasn't, I wasn't freaking out. I wasn't panicking. Not to, not to my knowledge. I mean, those guys may, may have something else to say about it, but in my mind, I wasn't freaking out. I was like, doc, just help me. Like something's wrong. I don't know what I'm bleeding. I'm hurt. It's hot. Just help me. Whatever you need to do, do. And, um, from there, you know, from the X, um, well, during this time, if I can kind of tell the story a little bit more sure. during, during this time, the RPG gunner, he shot the rocket into my truck. Boom, blew me up. Well, he had already reloaded and was aimed in on Vic 3 to hit them as well. My buddy Sean Neary, uh, I'm not going to say that he froze, but he was kind of stuck for a second, if you will. Um, Sean, I think he was 18 at the time. He was young. Uh, Good-ass dude, one of my best friends. Um I remember him telling me that he just kind of just, he didn't know what to do. And my team leader, I don't know if he was my team leader at the time, but one of my team leaders, Rick Perry, um, he was your quote unquote senior Lance corporal. He had deployed before and been there, done that. And um, I remember him telling me that he, he grabbed Neary out of the turret, yanked him down out of the turret, got up in the turret himself and then saw the RPG gunner and ended up shooting him. He hit him in the shoulder and the chest, as is, is what I was told. I don't know if he shot him with a 240 or if he shot him with his M4, but uh, I know he got two effective rounds on target, and that's essentially what killed the guy later that night. But during this time, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get treated. I'm in the back of the truck bleeding and, and all that shit, and... My platoon sergeant, I remember him pulling up next to Vic 3 because our comms got destroyed. You know, the shrapnel shrapnel rained down inside the truck and destroyed our radios. So we had no way to talk to anybody. And I remember him pulling up next to Vic 3 and yelling through the door, I don't give a fuck about their fields. I don't give a fuck about IEDs. I don't give a fuck about nothing. Drive straight back to the drive straight back to our patrol base. We have a mass cast. You know, I remember him just yelling this and I remember being in the back of the truck and I could, you know, I'm like, I'm laying on my back and I could see the buttstock of the 240 just bouncing. And apparently what I was told later, the RPG took the 240 and put it into a U shape and, and just completely destroyed the buttstock. And my, wow. my, my M27 was toast. You know, it, it was in pieces and, and up into the truck and, um, so I just remember seeing, you know, of course, we're, we're driving full speed through, you know, Afghanistan, through fields and all kinds of shit. We don't we don't give a fuck. We got mass cas. And um, and I remember getting back to the patrol base and getting inside of our ECP. And uh, I remember the back doors opening and that's when they pulled me out and they started to do, you know, there we had the uh, we had EOD. We had EOD Marines there working. We had the Scout, uh, the Scout Sniper Platoons, uh, Corman, Doc Shang, Derek Shang. He was working on me and a few other people. And uh, 
from there, I mean, whatever questions you got, you know, it's just. You can, you can recall all this with a remarkable accuracy and, and a lot of little things that, you know, I know you're talking about them, but are you surprised how much you can recall? I am. And, and that's one of those things that, you know, I, I'm diagnosed with a, with a traumatic brain injury, a TBI. Uh, it's just pretty much just another fucking fancy name for a concussion and playing 16 years worth of soccer and being active all my life. I've been hit in the head a few times and have had concussions. And, and I will say that none of, none of my previous concussions have ever felt like this to where like, <laughs> I don't remember much. Like my memory kind of sucks these days. Um, it, it, it's kind of tough and, and difficult, but, I am surprised by how much I remember. And a lot of it has to do with uh, piecing together the story from my platoon sergeant and my corpsman and my driver, Frank, and and being like, hey, I remember saying this. Did I say that? Yeah, you said that. Okay, cool. But I can't sit here and tell you how or why I remember. But the, the TBI research team at Walter Reed in D.C., they're like astounded that I remember so much. And I think what it is, is I, I told the story so much when I first got hurt and, and was in the hospital, it, it kept it fresh. Yeah. And it, it's refreshing to me to tell the story because it helps me remember. And I'm sure there's points and, and major points of this story that I'm kind of forgetting. And, and it kind of sucks because I'll think about it later and I'll be like, damn, you know, I wish I would have said that and, and told that part of the story. But. I, I just can't think of it right now and I'm trying to remember, but you know, I haven't told it. I haven't told the full detail story in a while because obviously, as you can imagine, it takes a little bit of time to tell. Right. Let, let me ask you, Alex, what yeah. memory is the toughest to deal with? In, in the sense of the actual what accident? Yeah. Or? Like what, what memory, what thing bounces back in your head that brings fear back to you, that brings you back to that spot that, that, that makes you kind of just, you know, jump or whatever it is, like what stays with you the most? Um, man, not, not that it's, not that it's a hard question for me to answer. It's just a hard question for me to kind of like, kind of figure out what, um, I want to, I want to say it's the, the fact that I didn't get a chance. I think I knew you were going to say that. I knew you were going to say that. I don't. I, I mean, I ironically, I just I'm sitting here thinking in my head, the thing that would bother you the most is that you didn't get a chance to fire back, like you yeah, didn't get a single shot of the dude. No, and and I think that's what. I, and like I said, I, I don't want to say that I was complacent because I, I've seen I've seen Marines get complacent, and I've seen what happens. There's a difference between being complacent and just getting caught flat-footed, is what we would call it in soccer, where you just get caught standing. You did you. You, you're prepared, but you didn't, you couldn't react. And I think that's what sucks the most is that I knew that something bad was going to happen. And I knew that we normally had about a 10 to 15 minute window because like I said, they would get all the, the village people out, you know, the village populace out, and then they would stage an attack and then they would attack and we would normally be ready for it. And we would give them hell but it just happened so fast and so quick that I didn't get a chance to respond. And I think that's what really bothers me the most is I, I wish he would have missed if, if that rocket would have went, you know, too high or far left or right and would have given me the opportunity to blast them. 
oh, I would have done it. I would have done it in a heartbeat, and I wouldn't have stopped until he was in a pool of blood. You know what I mean? Like that that's what kind of bothers me the most. Sure, yeah. It's, it's just the, the simple fact that I, I couldn't do anything. I don't like not being in control. You know right. what I mean? And, and I, felt, I felt like I wasn't in control in that situation, and that's what sucks, you know? What was the hardest part of your rehab? Man, the hardest part of the rehab, dude, that, that's – I can't, I can't pick just one. I can think, I can tell you a few, Go ahead. a few ones that not a lot of people know. Some, some close people to me know, my family know, but, um, I can think of two at the moment, but I remember being in my hospital room at Walter Reed and it took me, it took me a while to learn how to walk again. It took me a while to learn how to even sit up inside my bed. And in order to sit up, because, you know, my right arm was in an X fix. I had rods and pins coming out of it. And I only had my left hand, which was hooked up to the freaking IVs. So I couldn't hook an IV into my right arm. So I had limited mobility and movement. Of, of what I was doing. Well, when it come time for me to sit up on some, you know, up in the bed and as, as opposed to kind of laying back half, half ass and, um, to sit up inside the bed, I had to have a lot of help. I had to have someone hold my right arm carefully, you know, gently. I usually use, I usually had my dad do it. Um, and then I would have a nurse or whoever grab my left hand and kind of pull me up. And when that would happen, the movement was too fast. So a lot of blood would rush out of my head or to my head or whatever. And I, I, I feel like I was going to black out and pass out. And I, and I hated that feeling. And one day we were, we were trying to sit up in my bed and they're trying to do it and they're trying to help me. And, and I just felt sick. I felt nauseous. I felt dizzy. I felt like I was going to pass out and I just couldn't do it. And it just got a little overwhelming for me. And, I told all the nurses to leave. I was like, everyone needs to get the fuck out of my room. Like I had my dad in there with me and I had my mom in there with me. My dad was sitting right next to me and he was like, what's wrong? And and I said, I said, I'm sick of this shit. You know, something along those lines. I was like, I'm just fucking sick of it. And he's like, sick of what? And I said, I'm, I'm sick of suffering. And at one point in my life, I was really, I was really upset at the fact that the guy that blew me up, he took two rounds, one in the shoulder and one in the chest. And I'm sure, as we all know, uh, one single chest shot can kill a man. But um, he took two rounds to the chest and he died later that night. And laying in that hospital bed, I was so upset that he was dead and I was alive suffering. I hated it. I wanted him to be alive and suffer just as much as I did. And I remember my dad leaning in, kind of like giving me a hug and, you know, and I broke down. I, I started to cry. I was not emotional tears, angry tears. I'm sure we can, a lot of people that listen to this, I'm sure they know exactly what I'm talking about. You get that mm -hmm. angry, emotional yeah. tear, that crying where it's not crying cause you're a, a baby or a little bitch. You're just crying cause you're so fucking mad. And that's what it was, man. And I, I remember telling my dad, I was like, I wish he was still alive. I want him to suffer like I am. I'm sick of this shit. I can't even sit up in my bed without someone helping me. I can't fucking do anything. And I was mad that he took the easy route. He took the easy route and chose to die 
whereas I was hit with an anti-armor fucking rocket within six six inches of me inside of an armored turret, and I I was alive and I was battling it and fighting it, and 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 that was that was really hard for me to fucking grasp, man. And that was a different Alex. The Alex that you met in person, the Alex that you're hearing now, are two different people. I was on a lot of medications then. Things were really fresh and new. I, I just wanted to be back in Afghanistan with my buddies. I felt like I let them down, and it just sucked. And and I, I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. And 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 I was just really emotional. And and that was that was one of the hardest parts about the recovery. And it was just over something silly, like trying to sit up in the bed. But to me, it was just a big deal. And um, and and. The, the second thing that really bothered me, and, and I don't cry much, you know what I mean? Like, if, if I'm crying, it's either I'm in a lot of pain or something is really bothering me. And we did this thing called mirror therapy. And it's essentially where you take a big two-sided mirror, one-sided mirror. I can't remember exactly what it was. I only did it for a split second. And the way you do it is you take your injured appendix, whether that be – appendix uh um whatever appendix there you go that's the word i'm an infantry marine whatever whatever the fuck it's called um you know you you take that and you put it on one side of the mirror and so for me it was my right arm and i would take the left hand and put it in the mirror and it was supposed to trick your brain into thinking it was supposed to help with phantom pain you know the the neurological the 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 nerve pain that you feel Mm mm-hmm and it was supposed to trick your brain into thinking that your hand is still there. And when I did that, my left hand, and I'm sure with everybody, even you, your left hand is a mirror image of your right hand, vice versa, you know, to a, to a point, unless you have some crazy scars or whatever. Right. But your, your hands look the same. And so when, when I did this mirror therapy, quote unquote, I, um, I saw what appeared to be my right hand. And I didn't like that because it was false. It was a false feeling. I don't, I don't like false feelings. I like feeling real things. And when I saw that, I, I, I broke down. I started to cry. I said, this isn't real. I don't like it. Um, my hand's gone. Doing this mirror therapy, I can't do mirror therapy every second of the day for the rest of my life. I got to accept the fact at one point that my hand's not there anymore. And it didn't help the the phantom pain. It didn't help the nerve pain. It actually made it worse. It, it like triggered it. And and I was like, I don't want to fucking do this anymore. And the therapist was kind of from taken back by it. I don't think she'd ever had anybody react to it the way I did. And, and I was like, I don't ever want to fucking do this again ever. Like take it away from me. I don't want it. I don't want it ever again. And that was a hard a hard thing to deal with during the therapy as well. Is just the the way that they they try to help you know and everything's in good nature obviously it's kind-hearted people nurses that work there and and they're trying to do the best they can for me but it was just not okay with me it, it just right. wasn't no. <laughs> and listen you know alex you know brother to brother here man i certainly appreciate the honesty and everything that you've shared and um to get from that place where you are to now is courageous and it's brave uh and i'm proud of you and you know it wasn't an easy journey for you by any stretch of the imagination, but everyone listening, I think, you know, echoes the same sentiment that I have that, you know, we want to throw our arms around and hug you, man, because uh, what you had to go through is hell. And we're glad you're still here, man. We really are. I mean, you know, your family is, everybody around you is. And 
uh, to get that deep and honest and raw with us means the world to me. But, uh, you know, for the listeners of this podcast, um, you know, they certainly, uh, they're feeling the same things I am, brother. So, you know, thank you for fighting a good fight and still being with us, man. I appreciate that, man. And it's not easy. I will say that it's not easy. And a lot of people say that I make it look easy, but man, it, it, if you could spend a day in my shoes, you'd understand, you know what I mean? Yeah. But at the end of the day, man, I'm just another guy, you know what I mean? And, and I get a lot of flack for saying that, but I bleed just like you do. Uh, I breathe the same air that you do. I eat, I eat the same food. I, I drink the same water. I'm not a Superman. I'm not superhuman. Um, everybody's been through some shit and it's just how you take it. It's, it's a mental attitude. And I've learned that a lot from a lot of the guys at Walter Reed that, you know, and, and this is a this is something I say to this day. I have a paper cut compared to some of my buddies. You know what I mean? Yeah. Some of these guys and and females and women that I know, I have a paper cut, and I don't necessarily feel like I need to complain and or say you know things bother me because there's guys out there that have it quadruple times worse than I do. You know what I yeah. mean? Like it's just one of those things. I I try to stay humble. I try to stay motivated and positive and I try to help out other amputees, whether it be from combat injuries or it be from cancer or it be from an, uh, an accident or whatever. I try to help people and get their mindset right. And it's just what I do. It just, it just mm -hmm. helps me and yeah. just trying to be a better person. All right. Before we let you go, uh, I do want to talk about Purple Heart Cruise because your family started this organization uh, and started this just amazing deal that you have for injured veterans uh and look, you can go to the website purpleheartcruise.org and get all the information for yourself but kind of tell us how the whole thing got started uh within your family where the idea came from and what it actually does so my my papa my dad's dad um retired commander in the navy he spent a few times a few days weeks i don't remember exactly how long but he spent some time with, with me at walter reed he saw what the caregivers and the spouses and the the purple heart recipients the the amputees went through on a day-to-day -day basis and he felt like he needed to do something and the way he did that was with his with one of his good friends um bob bush um he's a travel agent i want to say he is uh, specifically but he had the idea to, to to send combat wounded veterans and their spouses and or caregiver on a free week long cruise. And, um, obviously I was the inspiration for it and I had never been on one and he'd always been trying to get me to go on one for a long time. And I just never got the chance or never really wanted to, I guess. I'm not sure, but, um, he started this nonprofit organization a few years ago and, and it's been doing great. And, and I try to, to plug it where I can. I try to try to push it out to guys that deserve it and, and, females that deserve it and it's a great thing man it, it's it's fun it, it's it's beneficial it's not your typical like sit down and talk about your feelings type thing no i mean it's just get on a cruise ship with like-minded guys and talk shit to each other and bust each other's balls and have some drinks and go play in the ocean and see different countries and eat good food and just relax and kick it you know what i mean like, it's just it's cool and um you know, we, we constantly accept donations, like I said, purpleheartcruise.org, um, ways to donate. You can get in contact with my papa, John O'Connor. You can get in contact with Bob. Um, hell, if you have my contact information, hit me up, and, and we can go from there. But 
you know, if you're a, if you're a Purple Heart recipient, you were eligible. I mean, there's some things that you need to fill out and make sure that, and I can say this because I've been through it, but make sure you're not crazy and you're not going to harm yourself <laughs> or anyone else on the cruise ship. You know, make sure your your medication and your your medical stuff is taken care of and and all that good stuff. But come on out and and enjoy it. If you're if you know someone, if you yourself listening are a Purple Heart recipient, please please go visit, sign up. Um, send it out to whoever you know it's it's a great thing man and it's all branches you know obviously marines army navy air force we we all get together and and joke with each other and have a good time and you know i've i've had grown-ass men you know that have a wife and three kids and a house and were you know e8s and e9s in the army and everything i've had them break down to me on the cruise ship just because they knew I would listen. They knew exactly what I was going through. I knew what they were going through. You know what I mean? I could just give them that no bullshit. I'm not your therapist. I'm your brother. This is what you need to do. This is how things need to be. Quit doing stupid shit and fix yourself. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. yeah. it's beneficial in that way. And it's just a great thing. And and I appreciate you taking the time to to ask about it and let me plug it and and let people know about it because it really is a cool thing and it's just not as big as some of the other uh organizations out there yet hopefully it gets big and bigger but um well and last year you guys took five people right no 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 last year i went on the cruise last year it was in october of 17 and uh we took about 15 guys i want to say wow caregivers um I mean, we have we have great donors. Um, some some choose to stay anonymous, and uh, others. Some of the other donors actually came on the cruise with us so that they could see where their money's going and how it's helping, you know, these guys and guys and gals. And um, yeah, we had a great time, man. It was it was a, it was a blast. You know, guys got there and we you know get drunk and share stories and talk shit and heal each other and, and listen to, to each other's problems and try to try to help. And that's great, we, man. We, we meet and learn new people and, and it's awesome. So, so again, purpleheartcruise.org, the place to go. If you know somebody's a purple heart recipient or you're one yourself, go fill out the information and go enjoy yourself uh, with some great people who have also uh, shared some of the same things you have. Alex, look, it's been an amazing journey for you. I'm so proud of you. I'm so happy for everything that you've accomplished, everything that you've been able to do so far, and, and much continued success in the future. And we just appreciate you being part of the Hazard Ground. I, I appreciate you having me, Mark. I, I really do. It was, it was a pleasure. Alex Edis, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Semper Fidelis, Mark. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.